Welcome to episode 85 of the GTO and 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. I want to talk about Samsung Networks, and this week they announced an agreement with Amdocs, and they're going to focus on private 5G networking. I like this because Samsung Networks has a complete portfolio that supports CBRS as well as fixed wireless access. And Amdocs brings needed depth for the two to focus on vertical use cases. And some of those that were mentioned in the announcement include education, utilities, manufacturing, logistics, transportation, and retail. And so those are all, from my perspective, the top verticals to be focused on initially. And I continue to be impressed with Samsung Networks. They have slowly over the last few years clawed their way out of their typical Asian market. And obviously they've been a partner with Verizon on a lot of uh, Verizon's 5G deployments, but this really again points to the power of 5G, which is really in use case. And instead of just putting a private you know, 5G as a service offering out there, like we've heard from other vendors, um, they're going to focus discreetly on verticals and use cases and applications. So I think this will be really compelling. I still believe enterprises are struggling with when, when do I deploy Wi-Fi and when do I deploy 5G? So I think this is all good, but would love to get your insights. Yeah, I think this um, Samsung Amdocs relationship is not a new one, right? It, this is kind of an evolution mm-hmm. of um, them working together. Is, is, that, is that right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. I, so, like, I think um, this announcement was centered around 4G and 5G private networks, right? Correct. Yeah. So, I, I think, um, I mean, Samsung is obviously a natural um, partner to work with when you want to deploy CBRS, right? Because they already have um, capable hardware and I'm sure tons of software and and um, solutions in place already. So I think Amdocs, you know, obviously could take advantage of uh, Samsung's uh, expertise in that area. And also Samsung obviously can use uh, Amdocs relationship with with their customers and different applications to deploy. Cause, you know, I think a lot of people are still unaware that Amdocs has this business where mm-hmm. they do, you know, these kinds of network deployments and and solutions for customers because a lot of people are just familiar with them with their core product. So um, I think it's interesting. And I think some people might be surprised to, to hear that Amdocs has such a business mm-hmm. um, because if you're not in this industry, you don't know that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just think that uh, it, it's a natural partnership because I think they both bring complementary things to the, to the table. Yeah. I agree, and it'll be interesting. Both you and I are attending Mobile World Congress, and we're likely going to have a preview podcast before that show begins at the end of February. I will be spending time with Samsung uh, Networks at the event, and I should be learning more details about this relationship and a number of other things that they'll be announcing at uh, Mobile World Congress. But let's move to your first topic. And we talked about this last week around the FAA 5G hearings, and you want to provide an update there. Yeah, so they had a four-hour-long hearing, um, and I will be the first one to admit I did not hear the beginning of the hearing. I watched basically like the last hour, 
Um, but I went back and, you know, read some articles, saw some, some quotes. And one, I thought it was odd that the FCC wasn't in attendance. Um, that said, um, because this hearing was originally scheduled as a 5G safety hearing for the FAA, I can understand why the FCC wasn't necessarily involved because mm -hmm. originally this hearing was not designed to uh, point fingers at who effed up, um, yeah. but it was designed to figure out if there's a real risk um, and how it should be addressed. Um, but it devolved into a discussion about uh, 5G safety and they didn't involve the FCC and they only spoke to uh, the FAA and, and all of the airline industry uh, and, and, and basically the only representative of the cellular industry was, um, I forget her name, but she works for the CTIA. Okay. Um, I think her last name is Baker or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and like she was the only one presenting the, the, the network carrier's perspective. And let's be honest, I don't really think the CTIA always accurately represents what the operators want either. Yeah. Um, or might be, you know, lagging behind kind of how other regulators at times lag behind the industry. Um, but overall, I think the big issue was that um, one, there was a lot of um, defensiveness of the RTCA report um, on the side of everyone that, that, that is within the FAA and, and, and then its stakeholders including some representatives of Congress, because they are regulate, they, their job is to actually regulate the FAA and, and make sure it's doing its job. Yeah. Um, even though it falls under the Department of Transportation and it is part of the executive branch, they are still a committee that, that deals with transportation. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was really interesting because some um, representatives had a very clear intent with this um, to talk about the dangers of 5G and whether it was a real risk or not. And it was interesting to hear their different choice of words. Um, and it seemed like some people were very much in the FAA's um, camp and others were in the FCC's. Um, but the reality is, is that there was a very clear indication that there was a lack of communication between the FAA and the FCC and that the NTIA was responsible for making those um, uh, recommendations from the FAA move towards the FCC and vice versa. Um, and it wasn't happening. And that the head of the FAA or FCC at the time, Ajit Pai, who was named uh, specifically by some of the members uh, was, was claimed to not have been doing his job or not listening um, to people who were talking to him from the FAA and from the NTIA. So, um, you know, I think it's interesting to hear that that his name was called out yeah. um, because he's no longer in the FA, FCC. Um, and I just think the funny part for me was how many times the, 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 the topic of money was brought up and how many times the topic of funding um, coming from the $80 billion fund that was gathered um, and put into the U.S. Treasury um, could be pulled from to um, pay for altimeter upgrades for helicopters or other non-compliant aircraft. Right. Um, but, you know, in my 5G 
my state of 5G report, I said those exact words that this ultimately boils down to money right. and that the FAA and its stakeholders are using safety as a crutch to get that money. Um, I do think that there is a legitimate concern for the safety of people and a need to protect the safety of people. However, there have not been any proven um, examples of a 5G network causing enough interference with a compliant aircraft. And, 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 and to some people's credit, you know, they did say that the FCC only regulates transmitters. They do not regulate receivers. And that is another regulatory issue where if we have a constant mix of receivers and transmitters, there needs to be some kind of um, cohesion between the two because very clearly we don't. And um, this issue with, with C-band has been an ongoing problem with, with, with other, um, you know, other industries like when, when satellite was on it, right? So I think this is a, an example of, um, I, I believe, um, operators moving quickly, FCC not necessarily doing its job to its full potential, but also the FAA not doing its job either. Because yeah. one thing I definitely didn't hear during that entire thing, at least from what I heard, was why the FAA waited a year to raise these concerns. Right. Not a single person asked that question or even addressed that issue. Um, right. And and it just seems odd that the RTCA would come up with this report a year before the the launch of these networks, well over a year before the launch of these networks. And it wasn't raised until like a month or two before the report, a month or two before the networks were due to launch. So there's, there's still some unanswered questions. I have a feeling we'll have more hearings, um, but ultimately it seems like things are just gonna continue to move forward and the FAA is finally doing its job um, and, and certifying these altimeters, um, but, it, it didn't have to be this way. I agree. And you know what? I'm not surprised that Pi's name was raised. He was a Trump appointee. And uh, invariably, politics get involved in all of this. But clearly, from my perspective, this was a lack of just gross coordination on behalf of two agencies. As soon as the FCC deposited that $82 million in the Treasury, there should have been some discussion. With, with the FCC over this, but- Well, it should have been done before that, right? There should well, have been before. a carve out before that so that they could have that funding ready for, because these upgrades are gonna take time, right? They, right. I mean, one it's thing that a lot of people, yeah. well, a lot of people said like, we don't even know how long or how much it's going to cost us because we haven't heard from the FAA about right. certain requirements. So we don't yeah. even know what requirements we need to to, to fit with them. It's, yeah. it's a disaster, but I, I think, I would say 80% of the fault lies with the FCC or yeah. FAA. Or FAA. Yeah, I would agree as well. Well, we'll continue to monitor the soap opera here. And uh, as updates uh, present themselves, probably report that back on a future podcast. But it is earnings season. And so I've got two, my last two topics are going to be focused on earnings. I know you're going to talk about Qualcomm to wrap things up. But I want to talk about T-Mobile. They continue to generate the magenta cash. And so, you know, I was impressed with just a number of different statistics. The, the most important one that stood out in my mind was service revenue for 2021. And they rang in nearly $60 billion, which is a record for the company. They also reported on their fixed wireless access business. And they're well ahead of their stated goal of half a million 
We've reported on that on, on prior podcasts as well. So all in all, I know that you attended the virtual event. I did not. Um, you, you shared some tweets and I'll let you comment here in a moment. But, you know, from my perspective, again, T-Mobile continues to execute on all cylinders from a consumer standpoint. I'm still waiting for some really compelling enterprise use cases and applications and service delivery to come. We've seen a little bit of that from T-Mobile for Business, but I do expect in 2022, the upside for T-Mobile from my perspective is going to be in the delivery of enterprise services. From my perspective, 90% plus of the compelling use cases are in the enterprise relative to consumer. But again, I know that you attended the virtual event, would love to get your insight. Yeah, so I'm gonna rattle off some really quick uh, summary results. They had uh, postpaid net ad account additions was 315K in Q4 and 1.2 million in the full year 2021. They also had total revenues of 20 billion in Q4 2021 and 80 billion in the full year. I think you said 80 billion, right? Um, uh, 60 billion in service revenue. So right. the, so there, this there's was a total revenue for the whole company. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the, the, the big was um, adjusted EBITDA was 6.3 billion for Q4 and 27 billion in the full year. Yeah. Which is huge. Um, But those financials aside, um, I think the big, big announcements are the big, this was like kind of like a review of 2021, right? So, um, you know, they hit 200 million and ahead of schedule. um, And by the end of 2021, they actually had 210 million. Um, and I believe they said they expect to hit something like 260 million by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the end of next year, they'll be over 300 million. So, and, and I thought the really interesting thing that Mike, I think it was Mike Sievert said this, um, who's a CEO. He said that we expect that in two years from now, our competitors will be where we are today and we will be two years ahead of them again, still. Um, so I, I think, and, and I think to his point, um, you know, that last hundred million um, is the hardest because the first hundred million is easy. You right. can just put up cell sites in the most dense areas. You've got hundred million users, um, which I'm pretty sure is what, that's what Verizon did. Mm-hmm. Um, the next hundred million is pretty challenging, right? You know, you've got to cover a lot of suburban areas. Um, and that last hundred million is the most challenging because that is 90%, that, that gets you to 90% of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means covering rural areas. And I thought it was very encouraging how much time they spent talking about rural um, and what their market share is today. I think they said they went from 13 to 15% market share in rural. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're gaining share there, but they clearly are, are, are only getting started there. Um, and I think that they're, I think they even admitted that a third of their newest new customers came from rural areas. So I think they're really going to come after the rural customer. Um, and I think that's going to be a good opportunity for them to continue to grow their net ads. Um, and I think they also talked about churn with Sprint customers because Sprint customers have a much higher churn rate than the, than traditional T-Mobile customers. Um, and once they get, once they get, um, switched over to T-Mobile, their, their churn basically goes back to T-Mobile-like numbers. So um, 
as they're they're accelerating their their transition um, of Sprint customers. They obviously haven't gotten all of them converted yet, um, but that's also going to help them with churn and making sure that they retain customers because um, you know Sprint was a low cost leader uh, and a low cost experience, mm-hmm. and um, T-Mobile wants to convert those customers to T-Mobile customers, um, most of whom they have already. Um, but they're, you know, they want to finish that transition so that they can retain as many of them as possible. Um, and I think that, you know, their, their, their premium plans are, are pretty competitive, especially when you consider that they are fully, truly unlimited plans. And I say that as a customer, um, you know, I blow through 30, 40 gigs a month and don't even think about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think overall, um, there was some talk about auction 110, but I will save that for my next topic. Yep. Um, and yeah, I, I think your point about business solutions, um, they did talk about some big customers that they've won um, and that their customers tend to be on the larger side, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I think, um, you know, making, making a huge transition from like, say, T-Mobile or from Verizon or AT&T to T-Mobile with tens of thousands of lines is probably not the easiest transition to make, which is probably why they don't happen very often. But the fact that T-Mobile is actually able to get those transitions to happen is probably a very good sign because getting a small to medium business is much easier to transition than, than a, an enormous enterprise. I agree. Well, that's a good segue to your second topic. And you want to talk about the auction 110? And um, an analysis you've done, and I, I've got some input as well because I recently spoke with AT&T executives, but why don't you take it away? Yeah, so we've talked about Auction 110. We've already talked about the, the numbers in terms of billions, but um, we haven't talked much about deployment because uh, the quiet period ended on Monday. Right. So um, what I have heard um, was... You know, obviously T-Mobile, I'll, I'll leave with that because they talked about it during the earnings call, but um, they said that they will be um, mostly, well, they mostly went after urban and suburban areas, which is exactly what I said in a previous podcast they would do yeah. um, and explained why they had so few licenses. Um, and they got an average of 21 megahertz in each of these um areas, which is a, a decent amount when you consider that only 100 megahertz in total was up for auction. Um, and 20 megahertz is generally the size of a block you want to get a decent amount of uh, bandwidth. Um, so I think 20 megahertz is, is good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think they also said that they will be deploying the auction 110 spectrum roughly at the same time as they deploy their C-band spectrum. Mm-hmm. which will be, I believe, in 2023, Q4. Don't quote me on that, but I think it's Q4 2023. Um, and obviously the rollout for that will be pretty easy for them because it won't be in remotely as many areas as their 2.5 gigahertz rollout. Yeah. Um, so they'll probably be able to roll it out fairly quickly. Um, and it will mostly be in suburban and urban areas where um, maybe their holdings of 2.5 gigahertz aren't as good um, as they are in other places. Um, but I, I know you want to talk about the AT&T, AT&T uh, auction because we both know Verizon didn't participate. Yeah, so it's interesting. I have had a few conversations with AT&T executives 
AT&T just at a high level spent about $9 billion in 110. And I asked executives, you know, comparing that spend with the spend um, in, in C-band, what, what sort of uh, the value cost savings and, and what AT&T was able to uh, articulate was they felt like sort of based on the, the, the amount of licenses that they were able to buy in 110, relative to C-band, they, they estimate that that was relatively a $4 billion savings. And, and bear in mind also that the profile for 110 is better from a propagation standpoint than C-band. And I asked the question, do you feel like it's going to require less densification? Executives were reluctant to speak to that, but they did speak to the fact that as they are deploying C-band, they're also putting the necessary radio infrastructure in place to support 110. 110 requires a different antenna than, um, than C-band because again, of the spectrum profile. What AT&T is planning to do is as they roll trucks and they're deploying C-band, they're gonna install both, uh, both antennas, both radios at the same time. And so they believe in doing that, it's gonna reduce future truck rolls. And they estimate that could be almost a billion dollars in savings and, and, and OPEX over the deployment cycle. So. And in op oh, okay, in OPEX, right, because OPEX is the, the deployment of it. Right, exactly, yeah. Did I say CAPEX? I meant to say- No, OPEX. you said OPEX. I was thinking CAPEX because, but the cap the CAPEX is the same, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, because eventually you're going to have to install, you know, that infrastructure regardless, right? But it's just, you know, it's eliminating, you know, half the truck rolls to do it, which is brilliant. So they'll be, they'll be ready to rock and roll. And um, yeah, so from my perspective, AT&T did quite well. And uh, balancing what they spent in C-band relative to 110, from my perspective, I mean, I, I hate to point to Verizon, but it just seems to me that Verizon, they're spending a whole lot more. They're going to have to densify a whole lot more. It's going to take them longer to get their network, you know, their mid-band network deployed out. And again, it's, you know, it appears to me, you know, T-Mobile's in, in the lead. AT&T is fast approaching. Verizon's going to have quite a bit of ground to make up. What do you think? I'm I'm kind of curious because um, AT&T said that they're rolling that they're going to start this rollout in the summer. Correct. This is going to be like a mid 2022 rollout. Yeah. So that kind of puts them what six months behind Verizon in terms of deployment. I'm what I'm curious about is because um, I know obviously AT&T already has eight cities with C band. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe this initial eight cities is what we're going to see for the next six months and that the following six months will be a, a rollout of both. Um, but it is interesting because um, they will be rolling out more spectrum um, at the same time than Verizon is. Mm -hmm. um, at least I think so. Um, makes, yeah, because they're sense. both limited on the, on the C-band rollout. Um, so I, I think overall, you're, I think you're right. Uh, T-Mobile is in pole position. Um, and we have AT&T as a close follower, even though they aren't necessarily rolling everything all at once. Uh, I just think it'll be interesting to see the POPs numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously those are not perfect. Those are self-reported. Um, but I think we're going to find out everybody's strategy um 
specifically AT&T and Verizon's, whether they pay dividends probably at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, because I think it's anything before December of this year will be too soon. Heck, I think that might even be too soon. We might even have to wait till mid next year to really give them a grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see what those, what their average speeds look like at the end of the year. Um, we already saw, you know, there were some stories that came out. We're not going to cover those independently, but they were saying that, you know, Verizon was seeing considerable improvements in their uh, download speeds in the first few weeks of C-band's deployment yeah. simply because there's way more, you know, capacity and, and much higher bandwidth. So um, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be interesting to see what those open signal uh, and speed test average numbers look like over the course of the next year. And to, to T-Mobile's point, I think they're going to continue to be making more spectrum available and doing carrier aggregation um, across both mid-band and low-band, um, and also adding more standalone capabilities. So, you know, they're going to be a hard one to catch. I agree. Well, let me move to my third topic for the week, and I want to talk about Nokia earnings. And they reported fourth quarter earnings in what a turnaround under their new CEO. Last year, they reported a loss this time of year. This year, seven, almost $800 million in net income. So clearly things are turning around. Uh, their CEO, I think, has done a great job just reprioritizing what the company needs to focus on. You know, I've been bullish on Nokia for quite some time when a lot of my colleagues, uh, you know, other industry analysts weren't necessarily uh, bullish. But I look at two, two kind of inflection points in particular that might allude to uh, the recent success. And one is just around private wireless. And relative to their incumbent competitors, they have clearly been the leader in deploying private wireless. Um, I'll be spending time with Nokia at Mobile World Congress. And so I hope to have an, a, an update there on um, you know, where they're at as far as deployments and customers, but clearly they are out in front of their incumbent competitors. You know, and the other thing that Nokia did very early on was really aggressively embrace the whole notion of open RAN and drive that and make that sort of a cornerstone of their strategic plan when Ericsson for the longest time wouldn't get off the bench and commit one way or the other. Huawei was obviously very adamant about its lack of support. And, you know, Samsung networks, you could you could say that, you know, because they traditionally haven't been, you know, an incumbent competitor in, in the RAN space in the past, they, they embraced it pretty aggressively as well. And obviously, there have been, you know, uh, Samsung Networks has made a lot of inroads over the last couple of years, as I alluded to earlier. So this is great. You know, uh, having a stronger Nokia, I think, is good for the industry. Competition breeds innovation and cost competitiveness. I like to talk about that all the time. But what are your thoughts? No, I, I think you're right. I think um, I saw a quote that said, you know, the, the, the turnaround is behind us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're no longer in turnaround mode. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing for Nokia. And to your point, I think it's a good thing for the industry. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, we'll see probably more interesting things coming out of Nokia, hopefully fairly soon. Um, and especially with their, with their, you know, leadership in the private networking space. Um, I think we're going to con- continue to see that, that evolve. Um, and it will be interesting to, to see what, what kind of deployments will, will actually see happen commercially 
with Nokia equipment um, on the private side, because obviously we know what they're doing in the 5G networks. Those are all public. Right. Um, but the private 5G networking stuff is a little bit more uh, opaque. Yeah, it is. And it's self-reported, you know, as you mentioned. Hey, but you've got a third and final topic and it's a, it's a podcast full, chock full of earnings, but you want to talk about Qualcomm and boy, they had another just bang up quarter, didn't they? Yeah, so they um, reported earnings. They guided up on their expected earnings for next quarter, um, but I'll make a quick quick summary of numbers. Revenue was 10 billion for Q1 2022, which is their fiscal year. Um, it kind of overlaps with the calendar year of Q4. Um, and then they had 3.8 billion in earnings before taxes, EBITDA. Uh, and then net income was 3.3 billion and diluted EPS, well, diluted EPS was 298. Uh, that represents a 30% improvement in revenue, a 48% earnings, 48% increase uh, of earnings before taxes, mm-hmm. a 38% increase in net income, and a 41% increase in diluted EPS. So just huge numbers across the board in terms of the financials. Um, and then they also had some, some business. So um, they split out their business units in terms of handsets, RF, auto, and IoT. So handsets was up 42% over a year ago. Mm-hmm. RF was up 7% over a year ago, which is actually, it's one of the smallest improvements. Um, they've, they've been d- double digits for a while now. Yeah. Automotive was 21% and IoT was 41%. So now their IoT business is a uh, $1.5 billion a quarter business. And their RF front end business is over a billion, um, which it was a year ago, but now it's $1.1 billion a quarter. Their automotive business is 250 million a quarter now, and their handset business is almost six billion a quarter, which is yeah. gargantuan. Um, but you know, overall, the average change is about 35 percent in terms of revenue um, across the, their business units. So the diversification strategy that uh, Cristiano was pushing, um, and and honestly, the company has been pushing for a couple of years now, yeah. is working. Um, and it's showing that, you know, they don't really need um, Apple to be a successful company in, in the mobile space mm-hmm. um, and, and that they are they are bigger than the mobile space now. Um, and I think they're going to only continue to grow these businesses. And as the Apple business can, starts to taper off, as Apple starts to, you know, adopt its own modems, I, I genuinely think that we will see them replace that revenue with, with RF, auto, IoT, and maybe even more handsets. So yeah. um, it'll be really interesting to see what 2022 has to hold for Qualcomm, but they've got a lot of really decent products in the smartphone space, which they've always had a leadership space in, and they've got a lot of great products in these new new areas as well. And you know, you've seen some of what they've done and they have a whole automotive platform. They have lots of leadership products in the IoT space on Wi-Fi. Um, and the RF business kind of feeds off of all of those. It does, you know, if, from my perspective, I believe one of the biggest growth driver opportunities for Qualcomm will be in IoT. You and I went to their Smart City Summit last year. We learned about this. 
what I'd like to do on our podcast is we'll include a link uh, for the landing page where you can find more information on this about Qualcomm. But Qualcomm is presenting an entire solution. I mean, this has been a company that's been traditionally focused on radios and silicon and that sort of thing and RF, like you mentioned, Anshul. But now with IoT, they're approaching this from a total solution perspective, including the software stack, focusing on use cases. We actually saw some of these in production on the Qualcomm campus in San Diego. And I really believe that this is a, a tremendous, you know, upside growth, growth driver for them. But again, I, another just stellar performance. I, I love the quote I, I read somewhere about Cristiano Amon saying that we're, we're executing on our strategy. And uh, that is an understatement uh, by and large. But hey, my friend, we went a little bit long this week, but we had lots of great stuff to talk about. But why don't you take us home? Definitely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to suggest insights for a specific 5G topic for another podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Town Tech, and I'm at Anshal Saad. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune again next week.